we live in a culture that prizes and pursues happiness at all costs, but often overlooks a greater virtue, a, a more precious gift. And that greater virtue and more precious gift is joy. Joy. Now, why, why is this? Why do so many miss joy? Because joy is grounded in God, in the unchanging character of God and the gracious work of God. Joy is grounded in the character and work of God. The psalmist sings in Psalm 92, verse 4, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. Now, what is the psalmist doing? Reflecting on God's gracious work, his steadfast love, his intervening activity in his life, and it leads him to praise. It leads him to overflow with joy and thanksgiving. Apart from God, we can't experience true joy. Happiness is fleeting. It is swayed by circumstances. Joy is lasting, not swayed by circumstances, because it rests on an unchanging God and his gracious work. Joy is not swayed by circumstances. It is lasting, resolute. This morning, we see this beautiful picture of God's people singing, experiencing joy as a result of his gracious work in their lives. A beautiful picture of how God's grace is the source of our joy. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6, you can find that in the Bibles we provided on your chairs on page 392. 392, and if you don't own a Bible, we love to give away Bibles. Uh, there's a uh, a shelf in the lobby that has black hardcover Bibles. Please take one if you need it. Please give one to a friend if he or she needs one. This morning we're continuing in our fall sermon series in the book of Ezra that we've entitled Return from Exile. Return from Exile. Uh, Ezra chapter 6, I'll read the whole chapter. Then Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the capital that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shathar, Bozanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. 
Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tributes of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shatharbozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated this dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. And it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord the God of Israel. And they kept the feasts of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The big idea of this sermon is that God's grace is the source of our joy. God's grace is always the source of his people's joy. God's grace is the source of our joy. The structure of this relatively long passage is God's grace on top of grace, on top of grace in verses 1 through 15, gives way to his people's joy in verses 16 through 22. So it's a two-part structure. God's grace piling up on God's grace, piling up on God's grace, it's just heaping, gives way to his people's joy in the latter portion of the passage, verses 16 through 22. So what I want to do with you 
is trace God's grace first. See this piling up, this heaping of God's grace in verses 1 through 15, and then we'll see how his people's joy breaks forth as a result. I love the, the scripture. I was reminded of this as I was preparing this week. In James chapter 4, verse 6, God gives more grace, James writes. In the face of our failure, face of our fallenness, James encourages us, God's people, that he gives more grace. He knows how to heap grace upon grace on undeserving people. God gives more grace. That's what we see here in Ezra 6. Let's trace this grace in verses 1 through 15. First, we see God's grace through King Cyrus. And so we saw last week God's people were jump-started by God's prophets. They had grown complacent over 15, 16 years. They were building their own homes, but they weren't building the home of the Lord, the temple. And through the prophetic work of Haggai and Zechariah, they restarted the work of rebuilding, and the local Persian officials, the governor, Tatanai, gets a little bit nervous, and he seeks to make sure that they have authorization to do this massive building work. And so he reaches out to his boss in Persian headquarters, Darius, and seeks to find some decree in some time past that authorizes this work. And we see the investigation begins. Darius, verse 1, the king of Persia made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found. This gives us a little picture of the geographical expanse of the Persian Empire. It is large. They look first in Babylonia, which was the capital city of the Babylonian Empire, which the Persians then took over, conquered. It wasn't in Babylonia. The, the decree of Cyrus wasn't there. So they look at another citadel or capital city, the place where Persian kings summered, a vacation destination, Ekbatana. There it was. There's the record. And this search would have been multiple months. There's no email. This is snail mail, really snail mail. So all the while, these hundreds of miles of exploration and travel to find this decree, God's people are building. They're diligent. They're working. This would have taken a lot of time. And finally, the decree is found and read to King Darius, and the full details of the decree are here in verses 3 through 6. We encountered a shorter version of the decree in chapter 1. This is the, the more detailed with full administrative minutia that went into this decree. So let's read this together. A record in the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth, breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be repaid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels in the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. That was Cyrus's decree. That was the object of their investigation. That's the authorization for rebuilding. 
Cyrus speaks graciously and respectfully of the God of Israel, doesn't he? You might think that, wow, Cyrus must have been a worshiper of the Lord. Don't be misled. This is diplomatic language. He speaks respectfully and graciously for a couple reasons. One, as was custom for the Persians, they kept people appeased by giving them a measure of religious freedom. Unlike other empires where they squash people and squash their religious freedom, the Persians had a different philosophy. Let's let them have a measure of religious freedom and we'll have a little bit more peace in the land. So that's why he speaks graciously. It's a diplomatic move. He's also, like we'll see Darius do, he's hedging his bets. These Persian kings were polytheists. They were equal opportunity worshipers. They mixed and masked, matched their, their, their worshiping. It's called syncretism, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, hedging your bets that somehow I'll get divine favor from one of them. So that's what he does. That's what Darius does as well. Nonetheless, God is working sovereignly, regardless of the motive of Cyrus or Darius, he's working sovereignly to give grace to his people. That's what we see here. It's grace on top of grace. And so that's the decree of Cyrus. Next we see God's grace poured out through King Darius, Cyrus's successor. This is in verses 6 through 12. Darius says, after hearing the original decree from Cyrus, Darius says, Now therefore, Tatsunai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, all these people were questioning What's this building about? They're seeking authorization. Darius says, keep away. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. So King Darius honors his predecessor's decree, doesn't he? He provides the Israelite builders protection. Leave them alone, he says. And he also provides them resources. Verse 8, moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute to the province beyond the river. The irony is the very people who were questioning the rebuilding work, the very people who were seeking authorization, it's from those people that tax revenue would come to rebuild it. This is royal tax income coming from the province beyond the river where the promised land was. They'd gather up the tribute and send it back to the people, the people of Israel, to build. Not only does King Darius provide resources for the building, he provides the livestock they need to sustain their sacrifices, to sustain their worship in that temple. It's grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing from the Lord. He says, verse 9, whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. The very animals that will be sacrificed later in the passage in the people's joy-filled worship provided by the decree of Darius here. Like 
Cyrus before him. Darius is not purely altruistic in his provisions, is he? He does have some self-serving motives. That prayers might be made for me and my sons. In other words, that the divine would look favorably upon me and my kingdom and the sons who will reign after me. That's, that's what he's, he's seeking. He's hedging his bets, as polytheistic kings did. I'll worship a bunch of them with the hope that one might give me some blessing. That's, that's, that's what we do. See the sovereign hand of God at work in these world events. It's all throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. The hidden hand of God working his plan, providing for his people, restoring their worship. God's hand at work in world events. God's hand is at work in our world events, current events. Though bleak as they can seem sometimes, God's hand is at work. And the author of Ezra is helping us lift our eyes to see that hand of God, his gracious hand, his sovereign and powerful hand, no matter what our circumstances say. He has the power to direct the hearts of kings. Proverbs 21, the heart of the king is like a river in the hand of God. He steers it wherever he wishes. That's the sovereign power of God. We see it here. And to ensure obedience to these instructions, notice what Darius does. He issues a threat that is common in ancient Near Eastern decrees. I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. It's an awful threat. One's own home becomes the implement of execution. Take a beam, sharpen the top of it, and impale the person who disobeys. It's common in the ancient Near East with decrees, threats to coerce obedience. Darius concludes his decree in verse 12. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. God's grace through King Cyrus, followed by God's grace through King Darius. Next, we see God's grace through Governor Tatani. Grace on top of grace. Grace piling on top of grace. Verse 13, we see God's grace through this local governor, Tatani. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shathar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. So Governor Tatani follows Darius, who followed Cyrus. God is pouring out his grace upon his people through these foreign rulers, isn't he? And also through his sustaining word through the prophets. We saw this in Ezra chapter 5. It's a continuation of that theme. Notice what we see in verse 14. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. Do you remember what jump-started the people back in Ezra chapter 5 from their complacency to their rebuilding? It was the prophetic word. God comes alongside his people, and they herald truth to the people of God so that they can get back to work and be obedient and diligent unto the Lord. And it didn't just start with a jump-start. 
it, it continued on through a sustaining prophetic ministry. So in Ezra 5, we see the prophets remained with them, teaching, prophesying. And they continued even on to that. That's what we see here in verse 14. The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the ongoing prophetic ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. God never leaves himself without a witness. He continues to sustain us through his word. He saves us through his saving word, and he sustains us until we see him face to face with his sustaining word. Don't miss this. God has given you a treasure to sustain you through the ups and downs, through the darkest days. It's his word. And it's just a little note here in verse 14, but it's what sustained those builders in the long and difficult days of rebuilding. It's the word of the Lord through the prophets that sustains these people. Never lose your grip on the life-sustaining power of God's word. Keep reading it. Keep feeding from it. It will sustain you until you meet the Lord face to face. That's his purpose for his word in our lives. Now, at the end of verse 14, we're prompted to ask a very important question. And that question is this. Whose decree was this? Notice the glorious language, phrasing in verse 14. They finished the building of the temple by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, that's a future king that will come in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah who likewise gives a favorable decree for the rebuilding of the wall around the city. He's just grouping that all in. All these foreign kings, all this favor. Well, whose decree was it? It was God his original decree. God is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who issued the decree through foreign kings. We see divine sovereignty working through human responsibility. God is working sovereignly through the day-to-day decisions of these kings. The decree of God, God of Israel was what initiated all of this, and it was executed through these foreign kings. He is the king of kings, the ultimate sovereign the one worthy of all of our affection, all of our trust. Next, the author of Ezra gives this historical note which allows us to date the completion of the temple. This is not just dry, dusty detail. This is essential. Verse 15, And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar. That's the last month in the Hebrew calendar. Finished on the last month, the month of Adar, on the third day in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. The sixth year of the reign of Darius. Darius began his reign in 522 B.C. So in the sixth year of his reign, what date would we be at? You'd be at 516 B.C. Now, why is this important? It's important because of the prophecy of the Lord through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29.10. How long would the people be in exile? Jeremiah tells us, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. How do we understand this timing, this math? Because the decree of Cyrus was 539 B.C. that initiated the return. But if the temple was destroyed and the, the city burned in 586 
and they're deported to Babylon, but then they return in 539. You do the math. Is that 70 years? No, it's 47 years. But if you take 70 years and subtract it from 586, where are you? 516 B.C., the date of the completion of the temple. Why is this important? Friend, because the clock continues to tick on the exile until the temple is rebuilt and they have a place to worship. Though they're in their homeland, they're still considered to be in exile without a temple. Why? Because worship is essential to God's people. Without a place of worship, they might as well be in exile. The 70 years was 586, the temple destroyed, to 516, the temple rebuilt. What is it? Worship is essential to God's people. It always has been. It always will be. The whole issue of the fallenness of humankind is a result of the, the, the misworship of God's people, the worship of self, the losing your eyes from the one you're supposed to worship. Worship is central to God's people. What we give our hearts to is of the utmost importance. It is a matter of first importance. So they're still continuing to be in exile until their worship center is rebuilt and they can go and worship. Worship is central to the people of God then and now. What you give your affections to is of the utmost importance. Let this Search you out. Search your heart. What are you given to? Worship is a matter of first importance. There is one and only one worthy of your worship who will sustain you, who will encourage you, who will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. It's the Lord God Almighty being worshiped by you. Verses 1 through 15, we see grace on top of grace. And then in verse 16, that grace gives way to God's people's joy. It's a fulcrum, the transition point of the passage. God's grace gives way to his people's joy, verses 16 through 22. So we read in verses 16 and following, And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, all of that given by Darius. And as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel, and they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. What do God's people do after receiving grace on top of grace for the rebuilding work? What do they do? They worship the Lord with all joy. They worship the Lord with great joy. And they offer these sacrifices provided to them by King Darius. And this sacrifice of 12 male goats as a sin offering harkens back to Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. That great day, once a year in their history, when all their sins are atoned for, wiped away through the sacrifice of a male goat, 12 male goats here, in this case, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the totality of God's people, their sin is covered. That's what they do here. This sin offering, this hearkening back to Yom Kippur, in Hebrew that means day of atonement, 
is a means of acknowledging their failure and confessing their faith. They're acknowledging their failure. How? When you receive atonement and go through the sacrifices for atonement, you're saying, I have sinned and stand in need of atonement and forgiveness. So it's an acknowledgement of failure, but it's a confession of faith that they are clinging to God's word and the means that he provided for forgiveness. So it's, yes, it's an acknowledgement of their failure, but it's a confession of their faith in the Lord who's provided a way for forgiveness. He's provided a way for atonement. And after this joyful time of worship, of sacrifice, they then celebrate the Passover. That's the next month. They just finished the final month. Now it's the, the first month when Passover is celebrated, verses 19 through 22. On the 14th day of the first month, they re- the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined themselves and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel." So fitting that these returned exiles who've rebuilt their temple celebrate the Passover. The first Passover was celebrated after the first exodus. God's people were held captive in Egypt. They're delivered. And in that deliverance, they celebrate the, the Passover. And here, a new kind of exodus happened. God's people were held captive, not in Egypt, but east in Babylon, And in his grace, he delivers them once again and invites them to celebrate the Passover. Just see these biblical theological themes. God's hand delivers his people, and they celebrate the Passover to commemorate that, to worship God for that great delivering work. And like the first exodus, a mixed multitude of people had the opportunity to join in. People from the nations, foreigners who once worshipped idols, are included in this worship of the Lord, of Yahweh. It is an inclusive faith here. The nations who align themselves to the Lord there after the rebuilding of the temple, the nations are included. It was the Passover, verse 21, that was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, to worship the Lord. What a beautiful picture through Old and New Testament alike spans the scripture. The way of salvation is for all people. It is an inclusive faith and an exclusive faith all at the same time. What do I mean by that? It's inclusive. Anyone who would align themselves with the Lord. That's what they're doing here. They're separating themselves from the idolatry of the land and trusting in the Lord. It's, it's inclusive. Anybody who does that is saved, but it's exclusive in the sense that that's the only way. There's not multiple paths up the same mountain to reach God. That's pluralism. No, no. There is one way of salvation. It's through repentance and faith 
in the delivering hand of the Lord, Old and New Testament alike. There's not multiple ways. So it's exclusive in that sense, but it's inclusive. Anybody can come. Anybody can come. Why am I laboring this? Well, it's in, the, it's in the word here. We've got to process this. But this, friends, this is a question as you interact with skeptical people who, who struggled. Surely not, Dane. That is just so narrow-minded. That is, in fact, bigotry for you to say that there's only one way. But it's the most loving thing that I can do to say that there's only one way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. There is only one way. It is an exclusive faith in that sense. Oh, but friend, if you would trust in him, it's your way. It's your way. It's inclusive of you. We cannot worship God on our own terms. We can't exert our will upon God. If, if he is God and he is infinite and we are God and we are fine, we would expect him to kind of blow our categories. There is one way that he's provided. And it's available to all. Anyone from those nations that separated themselves, i.e. they repented and turned to the Lord, they were welcomed. And so it is today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is made available to all who will repent and believe in the one way, the saving way, the way of Jesus. It's available to anybody here by faith and repentance. Be equipped. Be equipped to answer that hard question. You will be called narrow-minded and bigoted. Be equipped to answer it and hold out that invitation kindly but boldly, for that is the way of the Lord. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. We see a beautiful theme in this passage that spans Scripture. The deliverance of God and the joy of God's people. The grace of God and the joy of God's people. We see out at the, the first exodus from captivity in Egypt. What do we see in Exodus 14? God makes a way when there was no way. His people were toast. They were dead on that shore of the Red Sea. And then suddenly Moses slips up his staff. The waters part. God makes a way when there is no way. It's just grace. It's just all grace. They couldn't do anything. And they get on the other side. What's the first thing they do? Exodus 14 gives way to Exodus 15. It's the song of Moses. They're rejoicing in the Lord. Exodus 15, verse 2, this is the song of Moses. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Praise is the proper response to the Lord's grace of deliverance. A second exodus, exodus here from captivity in Babylon. We see the deliverance from exile, Ezra 1 through 6, and now joyful worship in response. And so it is in the ultimate exodus our captivity to sin and death. Christ comes and he releases us from captivity through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection. He delivers us and invites us to trust in him alone to receive that deliverance, to receive that grace. And what is our response? It's to sing with joy to find the joy of knowing Jesus, our Savior. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him face to face, you love him. That is Jesus. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's what it is to trust in Christ. 
One day we will see him face to face, but now we see him through the eyes of faith. And when you set your eyes of faith on Jesus, you are filled with an inexpressible joy. He delivers us from the captivity of sin, and we praise him. We find joy. That's the theme throughout the scripture, God's grace in delivering his people and his people's response of joy. And it's a joy that's unshakable. Rest in it, friends. Relish it on the dark and difficult days of life. Remember your salvation. It is your strength. It's your sustaining power. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for your grace that is on top of grace. It just heaps upon us, Lord. It's overwhelming. It's abundant, overflowing. We thank you for it. God, Forgive us for the ways that we try to merit your grace and make it about us. God, help us just to rest and receive your grace. And let it cause us to be genuinely joyful, a joy that's not swayed by circumstances, that in fact sustains us through the ups and downs, through our dark days. We thank you that our joy cannot be stripped away. It is firmly rooted and established in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's his name that we pray. Amen.